Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's just welcome Mark back up here, and we'll clap for him this time. I forgot to do that. Glad to have him. You feel the heaviness of the fall? The heaviness of our bellies after eating some sandwiches, right? Okay, so we looked a little bit at what does work mean in light of creation. This is a beautiful, great thing whereby God has given us the task and stewardship to subdue the earth, to take dominion, to till and keep the garden, and just release the wonderful potentiality in creation. The world is big. There's a lot to do. Um, But that's been corrupted by the catastrophe of the fall. So creation made this beautiful thing, giving us this pillar of humanity, vocation, work. The fall has corrupted it and made it go in all types of crooked, crazy directions and do all weird things. But Christ came, lived, died, rose again, was ascended, seating at the right hand of the Father with all authority given to him now. What does that mean? Does that mean anything for work? So let's look at that. Let's look at work in light of Christ redeeming work. And then consummation. What does work mean for the future? So we'll take those two last stages of the massive biblical story, as it were. Let me consider this verse. Let's hit it from this angle. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. work passage. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul writes this. This is a page, these household codes where he's addressing the various groups within a household. And here he turns his attention to the slaves. First century Greco-Roman slaves. And by the way, if you look at Paul's passages to slaves, you find some of the richest Christological insights and work insights in all of the New Testament, when he's speaking to that class of people in the household goes to slaves. And I mentioned earlier, there's a social hierarchy at this time. You understand how society was arranged. It was arranged basically in stra- threefold strata, three-layer strata. Slaves who did the manual work, the productive work, and slaves at various levels. Some slaves were teachers. But they did all the productive work, the, the, the labor that for the lo- reserved for the lowest class of citizens. But you had the political class, the patrician class, who did the practical work of running society. But the highest class of laborers and workers was the philosopher king, the contemplative class. People who spent their, the, ob- the object in the Greco-Roman thinking about work was to get to a place where your life was pure leisure. 
where you just enjoyed life. Life catered to you. You didn't, but you consumed life. And you, all you did is think and reflect. So that's, those are three classes. And Paul is speaking to the lowest class, the, the slave class. And what he sees, and this is in light of Christ having risen, being ascended to the Father, ruling all things, upholding all things by the word of his power, seated in the heavenlies. This is already, this has happened. And Paul is urging us to see what we might easily forget when you're working in a difficult kind of job. He's saying, you have a master, an earthly master, but you have a greater master to whom you are to give allegiance. Yes, you're a slave, you're working for this patrician guy. You're a servant to them. But you actually have a greater allegiance. He says, for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, zealously giving yourself as for the Lord. And later says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And it reminds us, we have a paycheck however small or large that might be, that we get for our work. But you have greater remuneration to come. From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You see what he's doing? The person who knows Jesus Christ, in light of him having ascended and completed his finished work, does does his job, his or her vocation and job in union with Jesus Christ as united to him. We're not left alone. It's to the Lord. Yes, we have our earthly bosses and masters. But we have our greater master who is in view principally in whatever our job is. We get paid, but we have a greater inheritance to come. Because we're serving the Lord Christ, the one to whom all authority is given, the one who has united us to him in his death and life. This is so work becomes, I like this phrase, and you can unpack it. It becomes Christological discipleship. Whatever your job is as a Christian, Christ is at work in you. Even if you're a slave. Not just if you're a CEO or vice president or you have the ideal job. If you know Jesus Christ, he's actually at work in you in those places of labor. And that this is redeemed work. This is Christ doing something, shaping us, forming us, deepening our allegiance Empowering us to bow the knee to him, whatever the circumstance, we find, vocational circumstance we find ourselves in. And what that does is it makes a job so much more than just a job. It's so much more if you are in Christ. So much more than a task that gets a paycheck. 
or tasks you attend to for eight hours a day than go home to do something else. So much more than that. Again, it's, 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 it's Christ discipling us. It's Christological discipleship forming and shaping us into his own image as we serve him through whatever job we are. The carpenter who was nailed to wood is using labor to sanctify us, to make us holy and like him. And practically what that means is the most bitter bondage, dead-end job, becomes an arena for Christ's glory in our lives. Flipping burgers bring glory to Jesus Christ, if you know him. You know, Phyllis Wheatley, I was reading up on Phyllis Wheatley recently. She was a slave girl who was brought to America at seven or eight years old from Africa. And if you know anything about the transatlantic uh, route and the ships, that was a brutal, just surviving the passage was brutal, right? So she's seven or eight, just a young little girl, or eight and nine. And then if you're a woman on these ships, a girl, utterly disastrous. And her master recounted, who, who bought her when she got to the States. This is what, Phyllis Wheatley was the first black American to publish a book. She was the second woman in America to publish a book. Back in 1760s, 1770s. Right? But listen to how she sees the mercy of God in the bitter bondage. Remember, we're talking about dead-end jobs and the bondage of a dead-end job. Notice how, I wanted you to hear how she recounts the bitter bondage of slavery and the mercy of God in it. This is what she said. She wrote this poem. It was mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. This is how a slave girl understood her bondage in Christ. the lowest vocation. She saw Christ's mercy to her in this. And you know what else this means? What this means is that work in light of Christ and union with Christ, and I wish we could just talk all about this dynamic, but let me just condense it. You know what it is? It's part of this death and resurrection dynamic that we live out in Christ. Work is like that. You know, Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. If we leave it there, it's triumphalistic. Being made conformable to him in his death. 
He also said that we have this sentence of death written in ourselves. When he was pressed beyond measure, he tells the Corinthians, we have this sentence of death written in ourselves so that we might not trust in ourselves, but in him who raises the dead. You see, death and resurrection, life, labor, has death in it. Being a slave is deathly. But always because of Christ, resurrection is the result. There's death and there's resurrection. And so a slave girl, a person who's in a hard job, a dead-end job, a difficult job, a tyrannical boss, gossipy co-laborers, underpay, not fitting, round peg in a square hole, mismatch, yeah, career. In Christ, it feels like death, but you bank on it, it will end in resurrection life. Christ will have his way. (laughs) He will bring redemption out of the fall. (laughs) You know, one of the things, one of the ways this helps... You know, because there is a cross in our work. Just like the fall has taken on a cross shape now. <laughs> There's a cross in our work. It feels like suffering. There's wounds. Work actually hurts. <laughs> the best work hurts. The most ideal job you can find, given the, the fall, yet the reality of redemption, hurts. It disappoints. It never delivers what we want it to deliver. And yet, that death will give way to resurrection, ultimately. Christ is committed to bringing us through and bringing out something redemptive and good. But we, get, we have to, so don't deny the cross. <laughs> Entitlement is when you deny the cross. But don't deny redemption. Nihilism, cynicism, pessimism is a flat-out denial that Christ is at work redeeming things, including labor. You know where this shows up? I don't know. I don't want to pick on millennials. (laughs) But a lot of people say, this is not just millennials. This desire to have this ideal job, to do what you love, to change the world, be able to pay your college debt and retire at 40. You know, it's just crazy. If you take on board, if we, you as a Christian, you take on board the fact that there's death before resurrection, that we die, that the shape of our labor is cruciform but will result in resurrection. You won't insist on doing what you love. You won't insist on it. Because you will know God can get great glory to himself even when you're in a mismatched job. And you know, we're really the first generation of people, this this modern post-industrial America, first generation of people who had vocational choice. (laughs) The billions of people for most of human history were born knowing what they would do, what their dad did. Or the neighboring farm. (laughs) 
you were locked in. And God in his infinite wisdom in our time has allowed economies to develop in such that we just all of a sudden have to make decisions about majors and jobs and careers. That's actually, there's a blessing to that. There's a blessing in that kind of liberty. But we're not owed that. Don't forget the cross in labor. Christ died, we die, the, 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 we're conformed to his death, and that, that, it affects everything. It affects your relationships and your marriages. That affects your raising your kids. It's hard. Kids are annoying <laughs> and difficult. They're little rebels that need to be subdued <laughs> gently. And our relationships are hard. I've never met a church where I'm always happy. I've never had a job where I'm completely content. I don't even, my best friendships don't deliver everything I want them to deliver. My family members disappoint me. There's a cross in everything, including our labor. And yet, Christ, we, we will re- raise completely into newness of life ultimately one day. There's resurrection after death. So you've got to see your labor in light of Christ's re- redemptive work as cruciform, so hard, painful, a dying, a death, a giving up a giving away, a self-donating, a painful conflict. But it is a redemptive war and conflict (laughs) and difficulty that Christ will ultimately win if you are in him. This is how redemption works. So creation, fall, and redemption. If we think about the fall without redemption, you're just a nihilist again. You think about the cross without resurrection, that that makes you a nihilist. God has called us not to be nihilist. Everything is not destined for ultimate destruction. But if you think about redemption without the fall, you're a naive idealist. Stuff is hard. The cross is real. The slaves, and by extension all Christian laborers, serve the Lord Christ and he will reward us. There's deep incentive. (laughs) Keep at it. Keep going. We're here for a few days. Life is a vapor. It's not long. Before you blink, your kids will be out of the house. (laughs) It's short. You will have a reward. You'll have an inheritance that awaits us that's coming. That's a little. There's so many angles in it, but that's a little. one little angle on how, the, how Christ's rede- redeeming work in light of dying, rising again, being with the Father, having all authority in himself, commissioning us as we now serve. This is a little bit how it works. How about the consummation of our work? Move on to that briefly. There's a, a line uh, from the Hunger Games. <laughs> I don't know what I think about the Hunger Games. You guys can help me. I'm not a parent or anything. I don't. It's kind of weird with kids fighting to death. A little bizarre. Um, but there's this line, Commander Snow, right, in all of his august, arrogant glory, turns to Seneca, and he says this line. He says, 
Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? You know, why do we, why do we assign a winner for the 13 uh, districts or whatever, right? One winner. Um, and Seneca's like, I don't know, you know, why? why? And he says, hope. Hope. Because hope is the only thing stronger than fear, he says. I don't know that it's quite theologically accurate, but I think the point is well taken. Basically, if you get people hoping in something, it really you can rally them and control them. More than suppressing them with terror and fear. People are more likely to revolt, find a way to avoid fearful motivation than hope. You can drive someone a long way if they're longing for something ahead. It's a more powerful incentive. Both are adequate, valid, but hope has this way of pulling us ahead. Fear has a way of stifling us and alerting us. It's very necessary. But hope does something in terms of animating our motives to achieve. And that's what consummation of work is about. The Apostle Paul says, and the point I want to make with this, is our work in light of the life that's to come. It says, we work out of hope, knowing this, that work matters not just for now, for how it can help our neighbor, how it can be a positive, good, and productive thing, but we work out of hope knowing that our work matters for the life to come, for the future. So we hope for an outcome in our work. And two quick passages that, 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 that substantiate this. Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always about the work of the Lord. Why, Paul? Because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not empty. It's not Ecclesiastes-like. It has a promise to it. It's not vain. Our labor now, and it says in the Lord, but that you can't delimit it to special sacred work. This is labor done under Christ. Has a future promise to it. It won't eventuate into nothing. It's not empty, pointless. It's not in vain. One author put it, one theologian, he says, earthly work will have an influence on resurrected personality in the future. Wish we could unpack that. And Jesus himself even tells us, you know, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, that our labors now will yield abundance, even affluence, later. He says at the end of that parable of the talents, right, one, someone was given one, someone was given three or five, and someone's given ten, and then they were to use it, 
invest it, whatever, for the master. And then Jesus comes back and takes a tally and one of them buried it, didn't yield anything. And the most, perhaps the most scathing denunciation in all of New Testament comes to that one who refused to labor for his master. But here's what he says, summing up. For to everyone who has, will more be given. Right? So you have a little bit, you work, invest, and by Christ's gracious transposition, it becomes an abundance. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. Don't read prosperity theology into this. This is Jesus. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then he says later, cast away the unprofitable servant. So this is a matter of life and death. Following Christ in what he has given to us, time, talent, stewardship, capacity. It's serious business. This isn't a, it's not an optional thing. And to the one who gives himself in service to his master, to making use and laboring with what Christ has graciously entrusted to him, that person will see an abundance. And you know what? Not infrequently things work this way now. Right? You work, you invest, you do it judiciously and prudently. And just the way God has set up the world, it often multiplies and is blessed. In his providence, like in Ecclesiastes, he can take it all away. A storm can come and overthrow your harvest that you've worked so hard. To... Banks and economies can crash and you lose 70% of your retirement account. Right? Things can happen. Moth and rust can corrupt gold. <laughs> but more times than not, in his normal course of, of life and the way the world works, investment now yields fruit later. That's just kind of how he sets it up. Arduous labor yields affluence. Fruit beyond expectation. Again, don't be, don't be afraid of that word affluence. It's a good book if you want to read it. It's called The Good of Affluence by, uh, John, uh, by Schneider. I forgot his first name. And really, think about it. If the command is to be fruitful and to multiply, then the logic of abundance follows on that. Be fruitful and multiply. Make a lot. Produce a lot. Produce an abundance. <laughs> and often that, that starts with small efforts and investments that God graciously in his kind providence can, can multiply and allow to, to, uh, to grow. I think of this pastor, Arnold Dallimore, who was a Baptist pastor in Canada for 38 years. And he had one major scholarly project. He was a pastor, Baptist pastor. He wasn't a scholar, but he had one major scholarly project. And some of you know what it is. He was going to write a biography of George Whitfield. He wrote a couple other ones, but that was his big one. And he just invested a little time over a long period of time. And before you know it, he had two big volumes on George Woodfield. And that's, that book has had influence untold 
on Christian readers. Little investment in one particular thing, and boom, God chose to bless that, and that book has just had so much fruit. Um, far beyond what I'm sure he anticipated as just a pastor who was very interested in George Whitfield. And this happens all, all over the place, right? God uses our efforts and makes them productive, gives us an abundance. That's an eternity. So we labor with the hope that God will cause our efforts to be fruitful, that Christ will take them, that the future, even in this life, but the future and definitely in the life to come, that our labor will not be empty and meaningless, that it will be rewarded with an abundance that only he knows. And I'm sure that will surprise us. It will be exceedingly above all that we can ask or think. And we need hope when we work. We need it. We won't work if we don't have some hope that this is going to produce something. We need it. We need to know how our labor consummates in the future. In order for work to have the sense of significance that God intends it to have, in order for it to have that meaning, that this is yielding something to it. And our work matters for the life to come, an eternity. It matters for that future life to come similarly to the way that our present sanctification and pursuit of holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. It matters in a similar way to how our, what, the way our sanctification matters for the future. No Christian says... Christ is going to glorify my body. He's going to wipe away sin. He's going to remove the curse. Let me sit back now. No. The biblical logic is what John articulates. We shall see him, and when we see him, we will be like him. And then John says, he that has this hope does what? He purifies himself. The logic is that's what we're going to be, it starts now. We don't presume on grace. We don't let sin abound. No, we, this, this is almost like a dress rehearsal <laughs> in anticipation of the event. <laughs> so we work now, arduously for the few days we have, knowing God's going to take that and he's going to bless that and give us a surprising abundance in eternity that we have an inheritance, that we have an, a, a, an abundant reward that is in his hands and he will reveal in the appropriate time, and that our work now is somehow connected to that. Our labor for him is somehow connected to that. Okay, that's a little bit on consummation. Talk back to him. Anybody got anything to say? Any disputation, any argument, any affirmation, whatever. Yes, brother, Chuck. <laughs> what was the last? See, I meant to reread that essay. I think some of it is tied to, uh, see, this is, this is actually where transformationalists are pretty good on this kind of thing. 
our work now resurrected for because oh okay here's what one of the things he says he says okay when you're working when we're doing a job we are actually we don't stop being a Christian right <laughs> when we're in a labor we're we're in Christ we're laboring so something is happening to us when you're serving your neighbor you are being personally sanctified. Right, you're showing love. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, one of the ways you love your neighbor is you serve your neighbor. How do you serve your neighbor? Through labor and work. So something is happening to you anthropologically as a person when you're working. Well, the Bible clearly says um, that we purify ourselves now. And work is one of those ways that that is happening. So your resurrected personality, what God is, what rewards we have, what inheritance is to come, what judgments he makes on us in Christ, it's hard to put all that together, are affected because when you're working, you're actually, you're actually being a Christian. You're actually laboring in some way, righteously, selfishly. The Spirit is at work, and that's impinging on the reward to come. So present work, because it's a part of sanctification, it's going to have an impact on resurrected personality. Rewards will be affected by what we do now, right? So why would we think work is somehow extracted from that? Does that make sense? I don't know. Okay. So work is integrated in terms of the sanctification that is already happening. That's why he spells it. He spells it out. The anthropology and the soteriology of like the person, what we're do- and that we happen to be in the context of work. Somehow God is reckoning those things. He's, he's, doing the, he's doing the heavenly accounting on what's going on with us when we're at work. Right? Okay. Anybody else? Any comments? Or Uh-huh. Yeah, I know who he is, yeah. Absolutely. That is, yeah, I mean, that's a pillar, right? What's one of the work, worship? Man, if we're not formed young to, to be industrious, man, it makes life so hard. If you don't form your children to work, give them tasks to do as early as possible, to get to train them, to shape their little psyche and, and their soul in a way where they do productive stuff, and they resist, like I did. Is you know they don't say no to hard stuff, and they you just you're, we set a generation up for failure, colossal failure, without starting early. Have them just get your shoes when they can walk. 
labor, do some hard things. That life, that when they know Christ, there's cross in everything. <laughs> but there's resurrection. Teach them to do hard stuff. You will save their soul from hell. Don't let your kids be lazy. Motivate them with joy and dominion and things like that. But man, don't set. I just see too many listless adults now. We don't have a viable workforce that can take hold of hard things and endure it in hope of better opportunities, in hope of etern- you know, eternal blessings. So don't thank you for that, brother. Don't don't that that's this you just set your children up for failure. What time do we have? It's eight thirty. Uh, we started at what time did we start? Seven forty five? So it's been forty five minutes. A couple more minutes. Anybody got any comments or anything? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, thank you, yeah. And it, but just a qualification, there is bad work. There is work that we shouldn't, there's sinful work, <laughs> right? Nobody should work on an uh, um, evil uh, uh, movie set that's evil, purveying just trash or filth, right? Or we don't want to write books that destroy. Nobody should work for an abortion place, an, a, a death mill, 
That's not redeemable work. Just that qualification there. Anybody else? Any comments? Or? I think in a specific example you're mentioning, we're called, this is why God says over and over and over to parents, I will be a God to you and to your children. So God takes the long view, because we only have them for a certain period of time, right? Or you only have them. So this is where you trust the promises of God that you are actually doing what he's called you to do. You're loving your children, raising them in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. And you trust this covenant promise that as you parent, in the time you have, that God will add to that and, and give the increase to your labors. He takes the long view. The covenant, we take the long view, if we believe in covenant theology, that God is at work over a long period of time, and he's promised to complete and fulfill his promise to be the God of parents and the God of their children. And so you labor, you parent in hope, even when you don't see it. You keep at it. You keep parenting in hope. You, you do like, you know... Some of the greatest work inventions, right, were just this kind of faithful continuance in the same thing. What did Edison do? How many chemicals did he use to try to get the, you know? He just labored faithfully in the process trying to figure it out. And eventually, I think when, when you parent, you parent with a covenant promise that you're parenting your child, but God grabs a hold of them and saves them and works in them as you do the labors, you're, as you do what you know to do. You love them, you discipline them, you provide for them. You become an example, an epistle before them that is read and known by them. You teach them what service, you know, all the stuff that a godly parent does, and you have to trust. This is a call to faith. Everything is a call to faith. I don't, you know. I'm trusting God that I won't apostatize. That I commit and follow to him, that I won't run shipwreck. You serve him by, as a, in the stewardship of being a parent, you're trusting that he's going to keep his promise to be your God and their, their God as well, even when you don't see it. I don't know if that helps. I'm not a parent. Okay. Oh. Yeah, someone said to think about, when I was preaching regularly every week, someone said, think about your sermons, because pre preachers get you know, discouraged, just like parents. Like you preach the same crowd, and everybody looks stone-faced at you, and you think, you 
think the Lord was there, and it's just like, oh, thank you, Pat, you know, whatever. But you think about it as a regular meal. You feed your kids, and maybe there's no gratitude there or whatever. You're keeping them alive. And over the long haul, so you preach. You preach regularly. I need to see it not as these one-off superstar things that need to yield fruit and immediate. You're keeping your kids alive, and they're going to grow. If they grow up to be healthy, your processes have been, if they don't become criminals. Again, covenant promises. You form your child in the way God calls you more than more, God. We don't, we, you know, Presbyterians have never known how to put all that together. His promises with individual responsibility and everything. But we just have to, we have to trust God. I have to trust, you have to trust you're making meals and that's going to be nourishing. You have to trust that when you discipline them, that somehow God is going to mix that with faith at some point and break them and be, they're going to be submissive. You have to trust that your lessons you're giving to them will somehow break through a stony heart at some point um, and that they will, they will live more faithfully than their parents do. <laughs> yeah, I, I told you that process and not seeing anything requires faith and trust. God will take it up. Will turn stony, little stony, cold hearts into fleshly hearts that love and serve Him all the days. One more, yes. Hmm. In eternity? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Look, everybody was surprised that, you know, the Jews were expecting this kind of political reign. All those promises of deliverance in the prophets, they were expecting a big army, God coming to step foot down and take over and destroy the Romans. And it came as this little baby in Nazareth. Right, who grew up and just seemed to be defeated and seemed to lose at the last day, but yet that was the greatest victory in the world. We have absolutely no idea what the fulfillment of God's eschatological promises look like. I think, this is worth qualifying, because our bodies are not going to be evaporated, because the earth is going to be renewed, not destroyed, I suspect it'll be an order that the kind of order now will be Eden plus. There's just something about adding redemption to a beautiful paradise. Thinking about what God went through in Christ. That just makes it... Dostoevsky has this wonderful quote in the Brothers Karamazov that, you know, all the pain and toil that we've known will be... It'll be such that it will seem like it was necessary and made it worth it all. You know, he just has this incredible quote about how the fall becomes this means to greater glory. And some theologians say that new heavens and new earth are Eden+. plus. Because redemption is added. We will worship Christ knowing he was the lamb that was slain. And there's that's something about that that just increases your joy. So I don't know, but I think it's going to be beyond what we can imagine. And I suspect we'll work. Why wouldn't we work as glorious in, it, in its very essence? Why wouldn't we serve him night and day? I don't, I don't know, though. All right, that's it. We're done.